Welcome, 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 one and all, big and small. You've reached the podcast known as The Three Carnies. So come on, let's show you around. listeners welcome to another edition of the three carnies podcast i'm monica i'm tana and i'm jen thank you for joining us as we are ready to discuss season two episode two alamo gordo new mexico so let's get into it we open to brother justin's voice sounding loudly in a prison courtyard justin calls to an inmate a guard releases a man named barlin stroud who then accepts the mission to find scudder we cut to see Ben looking for Devin Kierigan at a convalescent home. Ben walks behind the vision of Brother Justin seemingly praying. Statues move before a nun escorts him to see Father Kierigan. He learns his name was on the list. Ben then helps release this man from his very strange mental state. Any thoughts on Barlin? Just in general, this was a really good scene to show Brother Justin's powers increasing in his state of hypnotizing or whatever. And the background of his voice, his creepy whispery thing, especially the line about Barlin is a good man. It was just a really nice scene, kind of setting the tone. Yeah, the whole mind control thing was really trippy, especially when it was all like, okay, you're gonna release this man. And then Barlin's slice your throat. And thank you for letting me out kind of thing. I thought from what little what we saw of him, I thought that we got a good sense of the man he was and how we're going to see him interact with our characters coming soon. Yeah, especially the guard leaning back and exposing his neck so he can be sliced open was really effective. Yeah, and if you take that in context of his powers, okay, so if you can hear Brother Justin, you're in trouble. (laughs) Oh, pretty much. I like that they've seemed to up the creepy horror factor as opposed to like series one. I really enjoy that as I'm a big horror fan. The scene with the Ben and the priest was really crazy intense. That whole whatever it was, vision, memory, sticky note that was inside of him that he showed Ben was really creepy and not a lot of elements, just really creepy. What did you um, folks make of how after Ben touched him and he kind of calmed down. Do you think that was, again, he was the human voicemail or do you think it was like Ben's healing and his healing touch? Oh, Ben is apparently spiritually healing him. Uh, To spiritually heal, they don't really need to heal from other things. They could heal through his love. His love. Okay, so message received to Ben. What do we think Scudder was up to? Because I did not get the whole snake biting, chompy, naked man in the corner thing. I don't know either, but I would love to find out. Yeah, I'll be interested to pay attention if that is ever revisited again in season two. I Even if it's just in the character's commentary. Whatever they're doing, we don't know the full context, but it did go against my theory that Scudder is a decent person just happens to be a dark avatar that scene kind of made scudder to look more evil per se 
maybe. I guess my thought is, is that it was a ritual and it gave me thought of maybe why he might have been chummy with Rufy before with the whole snakes thing. And maybe he was just trying to draw from power and just the sheer force of whatever he was doing caused madness in his buddy from being around it. If you're, if you don't have the tolerance, it's too much. Now, why he was doing the ritual or whatever he was doing, that I have no clue. That's my my theory. Yeah, but I wonder why did just Kerrigan's mind break and not the other man, Talbot Smith? Maybe it was an allergic reaction to snake. Warning, this dinner causes madness. Tell us your real thoughts, Jen, that you were about to say. I was thinking that maybe because the priest is more spiritually open, that gave him a lack of shielding in so much that ignorance provides a blanket of protection. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was thinking back to Norman and how he reacted to Justin and everything and just a person with spirituality and belief. It seems like they get the short end of the stick so far anyway. That is very true. Next, we see Brother Justin reading from a new book and Iris is looking amazing. That's not relevant to the plot, but I thought she looked really amazing. (laughs) (laughs) They have a chat about false prophets. And we then cut to Sophie walking barefoot in a daze. We next see Samson talking to Felix about the count being short. Ruthie sees Skeeter Lewis and offers a good catch-up. Meanwhile, Lila listens to music alone, looking sad. No one feels bad for her. How do you guys feel about the interactions between Iris and Justin? I'm really loving the quiet tension going on between those two so far this season. Instead of being a cohesive unit, they're butting heads with power. And I really like the fact that Iris is standing up to him, you know, more than anyone else will. I like that too. I like how she's one of the only people who doesn't see through his his crap. But my only thought, I have a theory about the why, but is that she didn't seem as strong as we've seen her before. It could be that she's tiptoeing around his feelings or like he scared her before. Or maybe she realizes that she can't control him. I'm not sure. But they did a really good job of painting, like you're saying, the tension and the discord that they have between each other. It's just Iris is acting a little funny. And I I don't have a prevailing theory on the why. I don't know if you guys do. I think she feels a little insecure because now Justin and Tommy seem really close. And he's telling his secrets to Tommy and not her. Though Justin insists that he trusts Iris more than Tommy Dillon, but he's obviously not showing her the new gospel. He's just unsure where the three of them stand. Yeah, and remind me, is in this conversation, does Iris bring in the fact that we were doing the Lord's work or serving the Lord? I think that's how she approaches him, is he's in a mirror making himself look all spiffy. And she references the Lord's work and he dismisses her. My question is, do you think when she burned down the church with those kids inside, do you think she believed she was doing the Lord's work in that effort? I don't think the series has really given us an indication either way, because we've seen her be like really fiercely loyal to her brother. We've also seen her be very jubilant and spiritual with Norman, at least in my estimation, that they're leaving it up to us to decide. Have you guys decided that? I feel like she knows that's obviously not the Lord's work, but I think she just really wanted to push Justin forward. I think she gave that story before 
the story of her life is faith in action. And that if you put the Lord or Justin, I think she'd choose Justin. Yeah, Justin is definitely her number one. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think maybe she convinces herself that having Justin get more powerful is good for the Lord. The bigger his ministry is, the better it gets for God. And it's the end justifies the means type thing. I can agree with that. I think that's definitely on like the optimist side. On the pessimist side, I could see it being a case where the whole God church thing is more of their playground and it's what they know and what they're familiar with. And that it's just the lip service to she wants her and Justin to be up there. On another direction, it was really nice to finally see Sophie. I really love that shot with her mother's ghost trailing behind her. But when we swing around to Sophie, there's nothing there. I think that was really cool. That was really cool. Yeah, Jen, you totally guessed right of exactly what Sophie was going to be doing next. The last episode. Oh, (laughs) I had forgotten my guess, so thanks. One thing that annoys me is that I feel like the makeup department just didn't want to deal with the actress's arm tattoo, so they just tied a bandage around it and said, here you go. Oh, is that why she was wearing that? I feel that's what happens. So far, she's been wearing clothing that covered it or if it's been see-through they obviously put makeup over top of it but this season I feel like they just threw over a bandage or they just turned it into a bruise for some reason (laughs) it just annoys me one thing I like about the show is so we've had I don't know however many minutes of serious and then it goes into the whole exchange with Samson and Felix and I really like it. I like that it's just a step out of two people trying to outwit each other. They just have some nice chemistry. I think it's funny that Samson was threatening to replace them and he doesn't give them their money. And as soon as he says so, then it's, oh, no, here it is. I got it. Yeah, he wasn't going to take the chance. Not that he feels like maybe he's going to kicked out. But if Samson is starting to notice, then they should do something else. I feel like they put in this scene to hint that maybe there's going to be money trouble in the future. Yeah, I think so. They've been having money trouble, right? We only had the one episode of Eggs, right? Yeah, definitely the carnival was not flush with money. But this was a way to remind everyone how broke the carnival is and how kind of skeezy Felix is since there was a big gap between season one and season two going on air. Moving on. Next, we see Ben is driving and stops to take notes. Brother Justin breaks ground on the Temple of Jericho. Tommy is digging for information from Eleanor. And then Justin brings a vision to one of his parishioners. I like that we start to see Tommy unraveling the uh, mystery a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And we see all kind of mind games going with Justin and Iris on this part, too. which was really good to see. What do you guys think Justin's motivation was for naming all the dead children? I've noticed that he mentions that six kids have died in the fire. But if you listen to their names, there's only four of them. And I'm just like, Ugh. Do you think that was inconsistency or do you think that was Justin only knowing the names of four kids? I think inconsistency. Maybe more was said, but they chopped out two names in the editing room. Yeah, I think Justin saying the names accomplishes two things. It's another kind of chess piece in the Justin Iris power play. I'm going to rub some salt in this and I'm going to periodically look at you. 
But I also think that when he mentions them in the sermon, it really gains a lot of goodwill with his parishioners. Yeah. Oh, Brother Justin is just so caring. It makes him look really good that he remembers those names and is still thinking about those little kids. Yeah, and it also keeps it relevant, too, though. Relevant to people who are donating money to his efforts. And then also, if they do break the story about, hey, who murdered these children, it's keeping that whole thing alive. Yeah. Do either of you think that Iris feels bad for killing the children? Yes and no. I think she would do it again. Terrible that these lives are gone, but totally worth it because it moved Justin to this spot. I don't think she's really sorry she did it, but I feel like as soon as she came clean about it, she felt worse about it because now Justin seems rather distrustful of her when they've been so close growing up. She doesn't really know where she stands. See, I, haven't, I always thought that maybe she felt bad about what she did, but when I saw her reaction and he's reading those names, it wasn't, oh, I'm so sad. It was, what is he up to? What's this about? And less of, oh, no, murdering children. Yeah, her squeamishness during this was, what's he doing? Do either of you guys have a thought on why he chose to freak out his parishioner and kind of rub it in, in Iris's face? My take is that I don't think he specifically chose to freak out his parishioner. I think he was having a fantasy, like most people have fantasies, and his fantasies, of course, lean more towards the dark and macabre. Him emitting this energy or these thoughts towards her has this effect on her. But I don't think it was, I'm choosing to freak you out or cause you to cry. It was just, I'm thinking dirty thoughts. If that makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. Well, that makes sense. I also feel like she's having the same thought. Maybe not. Maybe. Yeah, like maybe his dirty fantasy gets put into her imagination too. Because I think she was looking at him with a level of attraction too. Mm -hmm. You know, well, powerful, handsome man. I really like how they're advancing their little chess game. <laughs> the show moves on and we see our friend Varlin making his way to the farm. Libby wants Felix to look for Sophie. And then we see Sophie walking and Ben sees her on the road. Next, the carnival is evening time and they include some of their lesser acts and the coop show. Felix is peddling dice. Ben brings Sophie back Sophie back to Lode's trailer. Sophie and Samson chat about card reading. And then Ben has information to give to management. A lot happening there. Yep. Barlin's getting closer to Ben. Or closer to Scudder, since he found the postcard from Scudder. Well, I guess he would be following Ben, because Ben is also following Scudder. Yep. Did either of you wonder where the third huge girl went? Yeah, I think she just saw like the fire and was like, yeah, I'm out. Bye. Yeah, or maybe after Felix and Rita Sue made up, they said goodbye to her. Because Rita Sue said in that season ending, like, she's got to go. I did how we got to see some of the more freakish acts because it's been a bit. 
Not that I need to see them all the time, but I think that's cool that they just took a few seconds to put that in there. I think it's odd how they refer to the contortionist as boneless Billy Benson. I know later in the series, he's referred to as Rolo the Rubber Boy. Yeah. Hey, listen, if we can go from Ben to Benjamin St. John, I give them a wiggle room there. Sometimes you just need to rebrand. I do like his sass, though. Oh, yeah. When she's, I wonder if he could look like a dog. And then he's, what did he say? Better than licking you. Yeah. He had, like, maybe a couple lines, but he did well with them. Yeah. I really liked seeing Ben hug Sophie when he finds her on the road, wandering. Clea Duvall is just doing amazing this season, and seeing her being zombie and then slowly wake up, she did great. And then starting to cry in Ben's arms. Yeah, actually, their scene was my favorite in this episode, just because of we haven't had a whole lot of scenes with them, and they're both really good. And they got to showcase that together. Yeah, I love the scene too. The part where Sophie sees the card in the bed. Yeah, I guess that card would suit her life right now. The Nine of Swords is one of the quote unquote bad cards. Apparently means destruction, sorrow, deception, and shame. And I feel like all that's going on in her life right now. Oh, yeah. Now, do we think somebody put that card there? Or do you think it's Apollonia from the grave haunting her or something? I think it's the Appy. I was going to say, it's magic, wink. She can't even get away from her in the dead. Poor Sophie. I know, and this is the second time the cards have shown up. Remember when Sophie found the cards when she walked back to the trailer last episode? Next, we see that Iris has hired Celeste as the maid. Celeste being one of the parishioners at the dedication ceremony who got the vision from Justin. Then we see Iris speaking with Eleanor about Tommy in her own way. The show cuts over to Ben watching over a sleeping Sophie. And then Jonesy and Libby have a chat. And then brother Justin is getting a tattoo from a naked woman, like you do. (laughs) Marlon finds a postcard from Scudder, a postmark from Babylon. And then we see a dead body off camera. Marlon is resourceful. What were your thoughts on why Iris hired Celeste? Do you think she was giving Justin gift or trying to make him happy? Or do you think she knew that he would mess up with having Celeste as his maid? What was her motivation with that? Yeah, I was thinking a gift, like you were saying. In my head, I'm just thinking, oh, here's a victim for you. Yeah, I saw it as a power play because I just have Iris as a boss in my head. She recognizes this is like somebody that Justin paid attention to. And now she's putting her there like a distraction. I'm going to throw him off his game. I'm going to put him temptation right in his path and see what happens. Because she knows her brother better than anyone else in the world. I just can't see her being very charitable with a gift for amends with all of that that just happened so recently between them. I also agree with that. I kept going back and forth between both of those scenarios. And maybe Iris went back and forth with her motivation. Yeah, maybe. There's no lose for her. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's a win-win situation regardless. If he takes it as his gift, that's good. If he gets distracted and she can find out more, that's good. Yeah. How she kept dropping the fact that Celeste was an orphan and has no one that would notice her missing was real interesting. Yeah, I also thought of Sophie when she said that, too. Oh, I love how Iris totally interrogated Eleanor. It made me feel so bad for Eleanor because Iris 
was teasing her in a judgmental way. Oh, Eleanor, you sure act different when a boy's paying attention. That made me feel bad for Eleanor. Same. She seems like such a sweet woman. The Jonesy-Libby chat, did you guys get a sense that when Felix saw them, he was trying to be protective of Libby? Or do you think he isn't a fan of Jonesy anymore? I don't think they're best buddies anymore. I think he's like keeping him at an arm's length away. Yeah, I think he was being protective and reminding Jonesy, hey, this is my daughter. That's fair. I do like that Jones and Libby talked it out concerning what happened the other night. thought that was rather mature of them. Okay, this is going to be a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there any particular reason why the woman had to be naked while giving him a tattoo? Is she a, a prostitute who side hustles tattooing? Or it adds to the process? I don't think there was any. I think they were just, the show was just doing that to try to make it look more exotic or tantalizing. Like, I, I, it, that wasn't my favorite part, and especially how they lingered on the boobs quite a bit when they were going down her body. I have no problems with nudity and TV shows. It seemed out of the norm for what was happening, just boobs for boobs' sake. I also didn't love it because Asian women tend to be overly sexualized. And I was like, show, don't contribute to that. I agree. I also wrote that maybe the show just needs to be a little bit more HBO. So they had to throw in more boobs. We're really down on our boob quotia so far in season two. The only other thing I was thinking about is that maybe there also was a sexual component. We just didn't see it. He visited there before which could be indicative of he's just approaching and trying to get a good estimate for a tattoo, which probably was hard to come by in that time period. Or it could have been that he's finding other ways to release his sexual needs and take back a little bit of his weird interest on Iris. That could be true, located in like the seedy part of town where he doesn't want to be seen. Next, we see Samson telling Ben that he needs to find Charles James in Ingram, Texas, per management. A tattooed man is called the Usher. Management calls him the Lord of Shadows, Usher of Destruction, which means the end times are here. Ben learns management is dying and offers to heal him. Okay, thought a point about management telling Ben that, okay, this is the end game. Like you're the final light avatar. So you have to, I don't want to say get good, but you have to be ready. You can't mess up or anything. So management doesn't think he'll be ready. And so Ben, why don't you do it? But obviously management can't because we know he's the Russian and then the Russian is like missing three limbs. Our management says it would be an abomination if Ben would heal him. Is it real? Would it be terrible? I don't know. Yeah, and also Ben was gonna go off and heal him immediately right then and there. But who was Ben gonna take the life force from? This whole last season, big spiel of it was Ben finding that, you know, management giving him spiel that you need to take life to give life. And Ben hadn't even thought about who taking life. It's like they kind of just forgot about that fact during this scene. Or Ben just forgot because he just doesn't want to deal with the big picture. So he's like, oh, you know what to do. Why don't I give it to you? Let's do it now. Yeah, but I also feel that that's not consistent with Ben's character, especially considering 
He thought for so long about what life to take for Ruthie. It, it doesn't seem consistent that he wouldn't think about that. Or maybe he just put it like as in it's the math of it. End of world or one life will figure it out. Let me touch you. Yeah, he just didn't really plan that far ahead. So do you guys think management being healed was what tempted management from last episode? When he told Samson, Ben tempts him? Yeah. Management is pretty selfish and he knows how green and inept Ben is. He's a chess player. It's not like he has a thing that says, don't kill people. Don't put them in danger. Management is whatever about it. Yeah, I would tend to lean that way after the scene. That management, at least in this particular instance, probably not others, was trying to do the right thing. I think it's interesting that they chose a woman to voice management. And then that created a lot of speculation between the audience members. For when we still didn't know who management was, and they were trying to guess. Why do you think they chose a woman to be management's voice and not a man or someone with a male voice? See, I don't know, because up until you all helped me understand that the Russian was management, I thought it was a woman. Do you have a theory? I don't know. I just think they feel like they were a big fan of her voice, so they hired her. I don't know. I think they just wanted to keep people guessing. This episode ends as Ruthie is chatting to Samson and learns that the man she saw earlier was dead. Samson then offers to take her out. We see daylight come to the carnival and Sophie watch as all of the rides come down. Then she starts to help and the Rouseys do not like working with her. The episode switches over to find a tattooed Justin completed on front and back. And that's all she wrote. I thought Ruthie looks really nice in her scene. And then I like how Samson doesn't make her feel foolish and invites her out instead. thought that was really sweet. Yeah, they have such a good, cute friendship. Or could it be Amore? We can hope. Hopefully. I can hope. I do not know how the series ends. They might fall in love and raise seven dash homes. They very well might. I wouldn't mind it. And then Gabriel could pick them all up and they can make a, a mini show out of it. <laughs> I know I'm being silly. Uh, I just, I wanted them to be a little couple and I got a moment where it was almost possible. I appreciate that. So if Skeeter Lewis was actually dead, who did she see? Skeeter Lewis. Yeah. She's uh, six sensing it up. I don't know which came first, the chicken or egg on that one, but that was my take is, <laughs> is that she sees dead people now. I thought it was sad and sweet at the same time with Sophie trying to find her new place now. Yeah, I really like that scene. You could see the flickers of this is what I could do to earn my keep and to have some sort of purpose. I think that's a testament to how strong Sophie is that she's okay, I'm going to figure out what to do. And here's this thing that's a possibility that'll keep me busy and keep me making my way. She doesn't think twice about the fact that it is something that women do not do. I really like that and how all the men were super shocked, but she's whatever. I'm just going to keep going. Loved it. Same. And there's a lot of different pieces in that that I like. I love the shots before because it's at the break of dawn and you can see that she's still a little bit of love with the life that she has. The people around 
it just seemed a little bit magical the way they shot the carnival from her eyes. And then also she's dealt with a lot of stuff. So keeping busy is a really good thing for her. And the last bit that I like was how when it's not Grady, it's not Curly, Ralph's D number two, under Jonesy, the mustache man, Burley, when he's all like, to like Jonesy and Jonesy's like, yeah, I'm staying away from that. No, yes, no, just you're, no, I'm not even touching that. I, I liked that because it showed where Jonesy and Sophie are. And Jonesy five episodes ago would have been like, my dear sweet Sophie. And this is all like, nah, stay away. Yeah. Man, every time though, I see Burley's completely straight and blindingly white teeth, it drives me batty. It's not going to surprise you that I've never noticed before, is it? I haven't noticed either. <laughs> now that's all we're going to be able to notice now, though. Oh, probably. You're welcome. I also like that she has joined the Rousties. She doesn't know what to do with herself right now, so she decides to help out in the most obvious place that needs help. And she's got some arms. She's buff. How do you guys feel about that we've been in five episodes in the same place? We're still in loving New Mexico for five episodes, and now we're just leaving. I didn't notice that. I will think about it. I also did not notice it because I think in the carnival show world, not much time has passed, really. And there is a lot of things happening. I'm glad they took their time here. It was really heartbreaking when they're all leaving. And in essence, Sophie's whole life left behind in that one spot, the burned up bus fan home thing. No, her whole life was there. And it reminded me a lot of episode one where Ben is leaving the torn down shack. His old life is gone. I had a similar feeling with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And it was such a beautiful shot. Those wheat fields, so pretty. Very odd to end with Justin's butt, in my opinion. <laughs> I don't know. It's a thing that they do in some movies. They have the Silence of the Lambs prequel and the dragon. He's becoming the dragon. And then like he shows his back tattoo, which I don't know why, but they had to show his butt. It's like if somebody has a significant back tattoo, the butt is going to be shown. And I just don't get it. I think it was originally supposed to be a more elaborate tattoo that went down the butt and down the legs and stuff, but I'm okay with them ending where they did. Me too. Me too. Yeah, I didn't mind the butt as much as I minded the previous boobs. There seemed more purpose to it to show how far down this tattoo is going and how Clancy Brown is just basking in himself. There seemed to be more reason to show the butt than there was reason to show the tattoo artist without. And I'm not really anti-butt as much as it was an odd note to end the episode. Yeah. It is a ta-da! He's done! Now, okay, let's talk about the tattoo. Do you think he is getting this tattoo to fulfill the prophecy? Or do you think he is getting this tattoo because he it might grant him more power what do you think the reasoning about like is he trying to become what's in the book and he has to do that or is it he's pushing it i guess what i'm asking is do you think he has to get the tattoo to unlock all of his powers 
I don't think he has to get the tattoo to unlock his powers, but I think there's a little bit of a, I don't know, I'll call it a time traveler phenomenon where his visions are of the future. And in the future, he has, the usher has this tattoo. Justin got this tattoo because of the visions he had of future him. But I think he would ultimately get the powers even if he didn't get that tattoo. But I think the prophecy has the tattoo because he got that tattoo. What are your thoughts on that? Artanas, if he'd get his power without the tattoo. I think there might be some sort of significance to the tattoo. I'm sure in that new gospel that he has, there's probably some sort of passage on it and goes into more detail about what the tattoo is about and what kind of, I don't know, special ink was used or something that we just don't really know about at the moment. Also, I feel like that tattoo probably took a really long time. Yeah, that's what I thought too in the big reveal. I was like, no way would they do that in one session. There just is not, you know, enough hours from when he walked in to when he took off his robe. Yeah, I had the same thought. Although it does shed light as to why Sophie gets a bandage, it might be all like, all right, Clancy, let's get you going with your tattoo. Oh no, it's past five o'clock. Sorry, we're just going to give you a bandage for your arm situation. As to why I think he gets the tattoo, I think it's criteria for being the chosen one or whatever you want to label it as. Because he picks that site specifically because it has the tree from the vision. And now he's getting a tattoo from the vision. So I think he has his idea, his manifesto or whatever that he had to shrink right him of all the things he has to do to get to where he wants to go. And this is just one of them. So who all do you have as your standout performance of this episode? I think I'm going to go with Sophie again. Yeah, I really enjoyed all her scenes, and I think the actress does such a great job. And she seems to be, I guess, haunted by her mother, and I think that's a really good storyline. Kind of has like a Carrie vibe to it with the Sophie didn't ask to be born in this way, and her mom is still haunting her, coming after her, tormenting her. Yeah. Yeah, her storyline was really good this episode. I think I'm going to go with Samson again. Two Samsons in a row for me. Just because I think the interaction with Felix was super smart and cute. They both are playing this dance. We're not saying what they're trying to say, but still getting the message across. I just really enjoyed how Samson was so kind to Ruthie and flirting with Ruthie. He was just a good egg. It's nice seeing Samson's character again. You can see why, like, he works so hard to protect it because he loves, it's his family. It's his friends. It's his world. And, of course, you know, he likes being the smartest in the room, which he typically is, unless he's with management. Jen, do you have a favorite this episode? My go-to that I was thinking of was Ben, but it's not as much he was the greatest as in his role was most improved. I loved how he took action and tried to find out information about Scudder. I loved how he interacted with management. His acting was amazing with all of his Sophie scenes and just how tender he was and caring and compassionate. It's the first time that I think we've seen Ben without all of the denial of what his abilities are and ignorance and and 
impetuousness. So yeah, that was my character for this episode was was Ben. But again, as more improved, not like he was the most amazing ever. Yeah. He did give Ruthie the cold shoulder when he got back with Sophie. It was really sad. Especially because she had like an acceptance in her eyes about it too. Yeah. What was your guys' thoughts overall about this episode, especially compared to last week? I like this one more than last week. I do too. It was still a little bit dialogue heavy for the show, just because of these actors and actresses, they have so much skill when it comes to these scenes. And I think it was going into maybe the difficulties we saw like in season one with the maintaining long arcs for the characters and then also with this season being shortened so I get this little dialogue heavy but I, I really like that they put in what we love about this show which is seeing those moments where they're just everyday people but then also seeing these moments where the everyday people have to react to extraordinary things and then also just the symptomness of the crow family <laughs> Yeah. I also like how for season two that we get more of the crow storyline. Whereas in season one, they were very maybe just like a couple of scenes, but now we have a good chunk of the episode is focused on them. Yeah. And I think they're much more interesting now that there's a little bit of a power play going on with Justin and Iris. And Justin's doing darker stuff, leaning in towards who he is. It's more interesting to watch on that side of the house. Yeah, for me, this episode, I do think the Justin storyline was more interesting. And as far as the carnival storyline, in in general, I liked this episode much better than last week. It was very dialogue heavy, but at least the dialogue heavy was people talking to each other and interacting versus big long monologues trying to dump information and it was great seeing so many of the characters interact with each other in the carnival and not a lot of astonishing stuff happened but I think it was rebuilding characters and it felt like putting on a really comfy pair of sweatpants and having some tea yeah not I wouldn't put it as my top five but I was like yeah I like this one we're we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, much better than the meh fest that was last week. That wraps it up for this week's review of Alamo Gordo, New Mexico. Again, this is Jen. I'm Tana. And I'm Monica. Join us next week when we talk about Season 2, Episode 3, Ingram, Texas. We would love to get a review or a rating on your podcast vehicle of choice. As always, if you have any sort of commentary or ideas, send it to 3 Podcast at gmail.com. See everyone next week. Bye.